Welcome to Supply Chain Next with your host, Richard Donaldson. Join us as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges professionals face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Okay, well, welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next, and I am ecstatic to have a fellow hitchhiker of the galaxy here in Stevens uh, Statler out of uh, San Diego, but you can hear a little accent in his voice here, so he's not originally from San Diego, but we'll get to that in a minute, and welcome, Steve. Richard, it's a pleasure and a privilege to be on your podcast. Ah, well, the privilege is uh, certainly mine and honor as well for someone who is a podcaster over 147 or 48 episodes, you know, been at it for about six or seven years, uh, Mr. Beacon Podcast. Well, but to, to get to be on episode 42 is pretty special. We were talking about that. So I got into the whole IoT business via a, a book that I wrote, uh, which I originally wanted to call The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Beco System, as in Beacon <laughs> Ecosystem. But the publisher, uh, Springer A Press, they were like, no, you're going to call it Beacon Technologies. And so I went along with that. But it's in the subtitle, and I love Douglas Adams. We both do. And so to be on episode 42 is uh, serendipitous and uh, welcome. And, and I think if the universe were sending us little signals right now to peer back behind the covers and see how everything's made, this may be that episode where uh, we uncover some of these truths. Uh, Indeed, let's hope so. so. So let me just jump right in, Steve, and, 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 and kind of get into the background. But, you know, you obviously haven't always been from San Diego or California, um, but would love to hear a little bit of the early, early years of, of, of Stephen back in, back in the UK, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was born in San Francisco, but uh, my parents decided that they wanted to live in England. So I, I grew up effectively British. I got the funny British accent, which has worked out. It gives me kind of uh, 10 extra IQ points in people's perception. And I need every one of those IQ points in people's perception to, to do what I do. And I, I run marketing at a company called uh, Willie Ott, and we'll get into that later. But uh, it's been a long winding road from uh, growing up in England and uh, um, a school system that uh, seems amazingly like Hogwarts when I, you know, I was like the house captain and the head boy and all that sort of thing. And uh, we had prefects and it really does seem a bit, uh, archaic as I uh, think about it. But um, I uh, ended up uh, being fascinated by computers. And back in the day, there were no computers in my school, but I got on a train and traveled to the nearest technical college that had a very kind of noisy, big device that shook every time you typed on it and uh, uh, was very pleased with myself carrying green bar paper printouts of uh, programs that uh, didn't do very much. But uh, And this was just uh, to, put the, to put some time frame around, this was kind of the early 80s, right? Yeah, so I uh, it was actually the seventies, uh, okay. and then I, I just don't not to date everybody, but there's a reason for the <laughs> yeah. question because contextually, I think it it lines up against some of the things that you've done. But that's why I wanted to kind of get that in there is that you were yeah. right at the very forefront of the kind of beginning of messaging that was happening. That's right. That's right. So I, I was uh, fortunate. I had a misspent youth. I flunked and didn't go to any of the universities I wanted to go to. I went to a, a technical college, which ended up having an amazing computer science. Uh, program. And uh, I had seen 2001 A Space Odyssey was awed by the character of Hal. I wanted to build Hal. And so I did this computer science degree and uh, ended up uh, working for a string of wonderful um, companies doing uh, some uh, interesting consulting work in the early days, research into OCR. I ended up at a, um, a company called Sequent Computers that latterly became part of IBM, and they pioneered mm -hmm. open systems and multiprocessor computers, putting lots of cheap uh, microprocessors in to sort of dethrone the mainframe. That was our thing, and we became the platform, the Oracle kind of got its momentum on because we had lots of cheap processing power. And I learned a huge amount in over 14 years of uh, solution selling, systems architecture. And uh, uh, because the UK operations of Sequent did pretty well, a lot of us got transplanted to Oregon, which is where the headquarters was of Sequent. It was uh, originally kind of a spin out from Intel, a lot of uh, uh, senior Intel execs. And so uh, got to kind of my homing in 
instinct back to America uh, uh, kicked in. And um, uh, after IBM bought Sequent, uh, we went from a 3,000-person company to a 300,000-person company. And the dot-com boom was booming. And it was clear that whilst it was a privilege to be at IBM, I learned a lot in the year that I was there. There were other opportunities to get involved in this internet thing and a bunch of ex-colleagues uh, uh, started a company over in the UK called Volantis that pioneered the wireless web. Uh, and when I was at IBM, my, one of my last acts was to make a kind of big bet on this thing called WAP, which was wireless access protocol. And I, I thought these phones, there's, there's going to be more than just phone calls on these phones. And uh, uh, I was lucky it turned out to be the case. And so uh, Volantis was jumping on that and they needed someone to set up their US operations. And I'd worked with uh, with the, the Brits that were at the core at Volantis. And so I spent some very happy years. It was a bit of a roller coaster. The dot-com bust happened. I'd set up a whole organization, which I had to lay off. Uh, and I ended up working uh, for nothing for Volantis, basically commission-only sales. Um, and after a year of selling nothing and my wife kind of looking at me in a very worried way, two young kids uh, who uh, we were kind of concerned about health insurance, I managed to close a deal with Vodafone largest telco in the world at the time and uh, uh, and made more money I ever made in my life. And um, Volantis said, you're going back on a salary. This is not a good deal ah. for us. So, uh, <laughs> uh, after that, um, I um, worked with them for years and slowly got to sell this wireless software to nearly all of the carriers in North America. Uh, so the three of the top four, the, the only one I didn't successfully sell to with was Verizon. And so I was advised by them that if you want to get into us, you need to get in via Qualcomm. So I started flying down to San Diego and working on this relationship with Qualcomm. And I actually wanted Qualcomm to buy Volantis because they were such a cool company, great culture, mm -hmm. very similar to the one that had been at Sequent where people were treated well and innovation and technology was respected. Uh, but um, that didn't happen, but they did offer me a job. And uh, since they weren't going to buy the company I worked at and uh, things were going a little pear-shaped at Volantis, um, I, uh, after initially saying no, I said yes and moved our family down from Oregon to San Diego. And it was one of the toughest things we'd ever done. My wife was in tears when we were doing the, the trip around uh, sightseeing San Diego, not because it was horrible, but because it was so nice. Nice. She knew there was no way that we would say no. So right. uh, uh, Qualcomm made it easy. Uh, my wife was very understanding. And now it turns out that she loves it because San Diego is a pretty beautiful place. So I ended up working at Qualcomm and uh, initially was trying to get them into the music business. They wanted to uh, go from powering app stores, which they did way, way before Apple had an app store. They were paying out billions of dollars to people that wrote the Solitaire and Sudoku apps that were sold mm -hmm. on feature phones uh, mm -hmm. back in the day. Um, and they were the app store that powered Verizon and 60 other carriers. So it was a huge app store business that evaporated once they helped invent the smartphone, which they, they, they did. And, um, Anyway, my career at Qualcomm was, it was educational, biggest mobile semiconductor company in the world. Um, and, uh, but I was looking for something that would uh, be, I don't know, a bit more creative than the, the role I was in. And so I entered a competition, which was uh, called Venture Fest, where you had to come up with ideas. And my idea was Qualcomm should get into the retail vertical because what's the best what's the one thing we all do every day it's shop you know so if you want to get mobile technology in people's hands focus on retailers and retail and it includes everything from vending machines to quick service restaurants and convenience stores which uh, uh, like it or not we tend to go to a lot and um, uh, fortunately I found a uh, a rich friend of the CEO at the time, uh, Paul Jacobs' uh, best friend, uh, Rocco Fabiano, and he 
agreed that it was a good idea. And so I got to be his strategy guy and we created Qualcomm Retail and Qualcomm Retail did a, a bunch of stuff. But one of the things that they did was to um, jump on the idea of Bluetooth being used for more than audio, uh, uh, for, for the creation of something called a Bluetooth beacon. And then, you know, we'd had that idea and uh, there was a very talented group that coalesced around that and uh, um, that, that, that spearheaded that. Uh, idea. And then Apple came out with the iBeacon just at the time we were doing this. And that kind of threw gasoline onto the, onto the Bluetooth beacon fire. It so took let me off. pause in for one quick six, Steve. So, cause yes, you, yes. you are, you are a masterful storyteller. I was gripped. I'm sitting here going, okay. And I don't want to get too, cause, cause you're going to, you're going to get right into the, into the, 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 how Bluetooth how we took a technology that had a particular, you know, kind of, you know, 30 foot wireless kind of radius or whatever it is, right. Kind of my personal back then, I think it was a pan personal area network was the whole yeah. acronym, right. Way back yeah. in the day. But before we get into that, you also, but you, you started in a technology kind of course, you wanted to build how, which probably means you wanted to build Marvin from hitchhiker's guide. Right. <laughs> and like a lot of us, we were kind of tinkerers back in the day, but you, found your way as I'm looking through this weaving into more marketing strategic you know I think you can play technologist but I'm not sure you would portray yourself as a hardcore technologist CTO type you're actually more of a technology kind of you know strategic look you know at things you, you see how things go together and there's a two-part question here one was that just a natural evolution of kind of you, right? Because I can kind of see that in your characteristics, your personality, you know, that comes through. Again, storytelling is fundamental to really, quite frankly, strategy to some extent, right? You can, if you can't tell a good story, I don't know how you can do strategy very well, right? Or at least convey strategy. You can think it, but you'll never get it executed. Um, with that said, though, a lot of storytellers who tell a good story, you know, have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, now they're already thinking strategically. They're kind of connecting dots. They're putting things together. So one, you know, is asking a little bit about that progression and just your own reflection on that and how it led you to more of a strategic role. But then two, and I'm going to double click on this one, you're also at a fascinating time to be at Qualcomm, right? Here's a giant company that was in this all microprocessor thing. And they've kind of went through in the period that I'm looking at kind of a lot of evolution during those six, seven, eight years, right? To where now all of a sudden, you know, they've come on the other side of that. And I think Qualcomm today, without without reservation, almost owns the kind of microprocessor, kind of mobile device chip market. You know, in Intel and NVIDIA, they can go beat each other up for the big processors, right? The x86s and whatever, but anything that's underneath that at a microprocessor level, Qualcomm is just dominated, right? But that wasn't the case when you landed there. You, you, you were there right when it was kind of morphing and they tried a bunch of different things, right? So hmm. two parts. One question about you and your own reflection in your path to getting to this more strategic marketing role and how you started in more hardcore tech and kind of evolved. And then two, a little bit into the Qualcomm story, because that's you were there at a really fascinating time where the company kind of molted itself a little bit, right? It, it sort of went full circle. It kind of came for processors, explored a bunch of different things, ended up back in microprocessors, dominated ever since, right? Um, mm -hmm. and, and some of your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting question about why you ended up being the way you uh, are and to me, I think there's like two bookends to my interests and character. On one hand, I love technology and the details. Uh, on the other hand, I really love the big picture. And so, trying to kind of schizophrenically join those two bookends up can be destructive or it can be creative. And for me, when I left my, I went to a polytechnic, so not even technically a university, uh, but got a great computer science degree. And I went to Logica, which was one of the, it was a very prestigious uh, consulting organization. I was kind of lucky to get in because they generally recruited from Oxford and Cambridge, but I joined, so it sort of turned up expecting to do a bunch of technical work, apply my compiler writing, operating system knowledge, networking knowledge, and they said, no, you're going to be in sales because you see those people over there and there's kind of a crowd of 
very autistic-like geniuses <laughs> doing the technical right, stuff. Right, 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 right. And they're like, no, you're going to talk to customers. And I'm like, yeah. great. And, and yep. by the way, you get a company car. I'm driving London. I'm 20. I have a new car. Life is good. But so, after, a, after a year or two of that, on one hand, I loved it. But on the other hand, it's like no one who's my age is doing this. They're all writing software. I want to do that. And so I, I literally said, I don't want the car anymore. Give me a programming job. So I went mm-hmm. back into that and I ended up loving it and wrote the internals of uh, operating system internals, Unix, it would be called Linux now, and was porting it to new hardware. And initially it was a struggle. And then I got good at it. And I was like, oh man, I can see how all of this works. But then I realized I'm a mushroom. I'm, I'm in the dark. I have no idea what's going on in this company. And before I used to talk to the guy that ran the division and speak to executives, and I'm like, ah, what am I going to do? And then I got the job offer to go to Sequent. And then, and that was like a technical sales role. And so I could do both. And so, mm-hmm. and then when Sequent kind of had this revolutionary disruptive technology, but they kind of missed the technology cycle and suddenly their price performance wasn't so good. So we had to get into the business of selling solutions. It's like, okay, you've got lots of cheap MIPS, lots of processing power, but what's this going to do to help my insurance business or or register social security people for the UK government? And so I ended up starting a group that did architecture consulting and um, data warehousing design and strategy because we couldn't sell cheap technology anymore. We had to kind of up it. And, and, and uh, part of my job was to move. I was one of the people that was trying to move Sequent from being product-based to solution-based selling. And so I kind of, I've had this back and forwards from being a worker bee writing software to pitching people at, at a senior level to designing logical schemas to trying to put together an architecture. And I think I'm happiest when I get to ping pong backwards and forwards to do that. And I think to do strategy well, you really need to drill down and test it because there's a lot of snake oil. There's a lot of uh, flim flam artists. You have to know and believe and understand what the implications are of things. And, uh, you know, I know we don't want to jump forward forward too quickly, Mm -hmm. but you know, when I was uh, first started at Williot, we were we had this revolutionary technology, computer the size of a postage stamp, battery-free Bluetooth. But what are we going to use it for? And it, it, I, I joined, you know, literally um, in the second quarter of the company's history. First person, very lucky. I joined first person outside of R and D, set up the field operations. But the first one of the first jobs was. Who are we going to sell this to? Why would they want it? Uh, and it's actually pretty tricky. When you can do anything, what do you focus on and where where does it make sense? And it's five years now, and I think it's only really in this fifth year that the strategic implications of this at one level is a very simple technology. It's a, it's a sticker that can talk Bluetooth and sense and compute. What What's it actually going to mean? And I think it took this embarrassingly long career that I've had to be able to join the dots. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I believe this is going to be a dramatic transformation. It's going to, the internet will explode to be a hundred times bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. And it's going to change everything. It's going to change the way products are made, distributed, Mm -hmm. sold, reused in the circular Mm -hmm. economy and ultimately Mm -hmm. recycled. But what I'm, just amazed at myself. And I tr- like to think, I think out of the box, it's so easy to get your head down and just think, oh, this is just a sticker or this is just a computer. And it takes like knowing what it can and can't do at a fairly detailed technical level. Um, and it takes going out and looking at the dynamics of the verticals that you're selling into to suddenly realize what's going on and what could happen. Mm-hmm. So well, I, think, I, I don't know whether that answers your question, but it yeah. does. And I'm going to come back to part two in a second, but, but let me, let me see if this word resonates a little bit with you. 
But one of the things that you just, as you're just, as you're talking about that, right, is you're able to tune into a side of you that has empathy. That empathy allows you to think outside of yourself, right? You know, where a lot of people who are hardcore coders, and again, nothing wrong with it, and I'm not saying they're not nice people, you know, that, that that's not at all what I'm saying is, but they're very focused, right? They have a hard time kind of getting outside of where they're at. Can I relate to someone else? Can I empathize? In selling, if you're not empathetic, I don't know how you sell. If you're in marketing, exactly right. I don't know how you can exist in marketing without empathy. Yes. And even in product development, I, I mean, the core thing I've written a lot about the product development world and all the things I just mentioned is empathy. Like the number one attribute. If, you, if you're a product developer and you have no empathy, you will never succeed because you're only going to be designing for yourself. Yeah, that's true. And, and on one hand, people that don't have that, they can be very focused and incredibly productive. I mean, I, I, when I joined Williard, I, I, I joked that it was they're an Israeli company and I'm like, it's like going into deals with the commandos. And actually, it turns yeah. out they are commandos. A lot of them are actually commandos. <laughs> but it takes like a super focus. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, uh, but the flip side is you do need to have that seeing it from the other person's point of view and kind of gray view and using their vocabulary and trying to get inside what is it that makes them excited and scared if you're going to figure out how to sell something. But it can be very distracting as well, and you can become unfocused. And, and you can also kind of become vulnerable. I was explaining to a journalist yesterday about our uh, uh, you know, we have developers in Kiev, and I can't even mm -hmm. think about no. it too much. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, you can probably see behind me, there's a picture of Kiev architecture where each of these meeting rooms is named after a city where we have an office. And, and my, I was tearing up. I just, just, just even thinking about our development team over there. And so it can be quite distracting as well. Um, so I think you need to... If you're going to be effective, you kind of have to compartmentalize this and try and shift and say, okay, now's not the time to be empathetic. Now's the time mm -hmm. to get on with it. And uh, well, you've got to be able to you've got to be able to kind of tune that empathy a little bit. You know, it's not that you ever turn empathy on or off. It's just you deprioritize some of the inbound signals, right? Yeah. Uh, to, to use some of the technology that you're involved in, right? I'm yeah. depressing some of the signal or, or attenuating the signal a little bit. Right? Or I'm really reducing what I'm looking at in the packet stream, uh, as it were, um, at times, right? Because I, I can't, otherwise it's too overload. If I sit there, and, I mean, I'm, you know, you just, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got friends, we all, I mean, if you're in technology, you probably know some people in, in, in the conflict, especially in the Ukraine, especially in Kiev. And it yeah. is, it's horrible. It, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's absolutely horrific. And, you know, I, not to drift too far into that one, but I think one of the interesting things politics, world geopolitics aside, though, and I think maybe as a technologist, you can maybe reflect on this for a second, is for the first time ever, and I don't think people have really realized this, in my opinion, looking at this, this is the first war ever fought on social media. Yeah, I think you're We've right. We've never had a war that's ever been fought on where concurrently on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you know, uh, Elon Musk shows up, I mean, you know, Playbook 101, you isolate the country, you know, bomb the crap out of whatever, which is what Putin tried to do initially. But the minute he cut the internet, Musk shows up and says, here you go. I got SpaceX, boom, boom, boom. You're reconnected. And then he got Zelensky running around posting everywhere. And you want to talk about creating empathy. It's like, in my opinion, I don't think anyone calculated for the impact social media was going to have. And it's completely shit. There's no room in the world to really allow Putin to maneuver at this point, um, in my opinion. Yeah, and and it's uh, you know you just look at morale of troops and they're they're fighting for a purpose and they know the world is watching and uh, um, they also know what happens if they see territory as well. So right, yep, yeah. yep. So anyway, so we'll, we'll come back. We'll come back to that because that's a whole other one. But so so but but I also don't want to overlook the fact that as a technologist and certainly who someone who is at the vanguard of a lot of technical movements, one of the hardest things about bringing new technologies to market is timing it, 
you know, is the market ready? Have I found the right fit? You know, product market fit, we always talk about that. But I, I mean, my classic example is Alexander Graham Bell, the uh, inventor of so many things, but the phonograph, he had a top 10 list for uses of the phonograph and not one of them was to play music. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I totally agree. I think uh, I'd say in the Beacon Technologies book, we talk about uh, the, the secret of good comedy is timing and the secret of successful technology startups and, and large companies is timing as well. So yeah. uh, we've all seen the great idea that's never actually uh, uh, dug its roots in. So um, so recognizing that is, is, is key. And I guess Qualcomm, getting back to your second question, Mm-hmm. Has 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 had some lucky breaks and some unlucky breaks that have turned out well. I mean, they've had some disasters that, like, they got into the the TV business and built a whole TV channel and uh, started using a phone spectrum to do that. And mm-hmm. it was amazing to see this kind of buying content. And they had smart people and they did it. And it was a arguably not successful, uh, let me put it uh, politely, but then they sold the spectrum and made billions <laughs> from, right. from their failure. So uh, they, uh, they, it's been, it was very instructive to be on the inside of that and see how they create ecosystems. Um, you know, CDMA, which is now core technology that's been part of 3G, 4G, uh, 5G, um, they started off doing everything. They made base stations, they made handsets, um, they uh, uh, made the chips. Um, and then they peeled it back and divested all those things. And they just focused on um, some core elements that then became part of a much bigger ecosystem. And they just, you know, every time I, I was I was in Israel and traveling around seeing all the people on their phones, I'm like, Every one of these phones has generated a small check for Qualcomm. They get money every time someone buys a phone just from the intellectual property. And then if you were to tear that phone open to stamp oh, right. on it and then kind of do the uh, the breakdown of uh, of it, you'd see a bunch of Qualcomm chips there as well. But, but that's, all these that's other actually companies. what I'm trying to, to get yeah. to is, is, yeah. is you're describing again, and, and I also want to point out here, this is it's a natural instinct, right, where we look at a lot of times we look kind of derisively at a company's failures and you know we kind of like oh it's a failure well yeah but those failures led to all the successes so culturally you were there during a period when Qualcomm was allowing and I still think to this day as a credit to them culturally they allow for that kind of very creative open you almost have a blank I don't say check but you have a, 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 a you know free reign to go do what you need to do. They'll try everything. And in fact, they're going to promote that you try everything. And then eventually that through all that trial and error, they settle in on these you know, multiple trillion dollar ideas. Amazon has a culture like that. Google has a culture like that. And because Qualcomm's kind of in the background for a lot of people, but is one of the most dominant, you know, mobile chip manufacturers ever, right? It's one of the most successful companies. Uh, but doesn't I don't think get a lot of credit for that. But you were there at a time when that was really robust. So I'm kind of trying to kind of drill into that a little bit. Is you know, what did you yeah. what, what did you take out of that culturally? Because that you know it, 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 I can contrast that with so many companies that are very rigid, and we could name them. I can rattle them off. You've already named a bunch of them. That just I do it this way, and then it never changed. That inflexibility doomed them what I could call the Librea tar pit of technology, right? And some of them are halfway into that Librea tar pit already. Uh, household names we know today, you just wouldn't normally think of it that way. Uh, but they don't maintain that culture of, and people talk about this all the time, culture of entrepreneurism, flexibility, whatever. It's, I don't know what to call it, but it's there's something to be said where a company enables its employees to think, be creative, think creative, and, and literally truly fail, but not like fire anybody, like you actually learn from it, you adapt, you grow, and that success breeds success, breeds success. So. Yeah, you can often have success and actually not learn as much as people think uh, from it. And it kind of right. reinforces, you, even engenders some arrogance that can be uh, it can be fatal. I, I think what Qualcomm did was they celebrated engineers. There was kind of mm-hmm. a hierarchy. At the top of the hierarchy, there were engineers, and lawyers. They had some of the best patent <laughs> lawyers around. 
And then, uh, when you say lawyers, I get a little bit like, uh, I'm not sure that's what I want, but okay, okay. Creative lawyers, though. Okay, well, that's different. Portfolio system for licensing Qualcomm's IP is patent lawyers are a different breed. Yeah, patent lawyers are a different breed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. So yeah. Yeah, I, I have huge respect for, for for lawyers. I mean, you know, it's good ones and bad ones, but uh, some of the smartest uh, people, and a lot of them actually think like programmers. They sure. dissect and decompose problems, and uh, um, so um, you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of one. But uh, no. yeah, so they so they celebrated that, and you know, the the joke goes: you have all these different functions, and somewhere at the bottom of that, there's the janitor and the business development people, and I was. A business development person at, mm-hmm. at Qualcomm, but um, they uh, they were great to their employees. It was a good culture, and a lot of it came from the Jacobs family. The founders, Erwin uh, Jacobs, founded the company. Paul Jacobs, his son, took over as CEO and chairman, and and Paul thought laterally, and he grew up in the brew business, which was basically um, the binary runtime environment for wireless or something like that. It was basically the APIs that the app store business, this billion dollar business was built on. But he also uh, saw health and television. You know, the television thing didn't work out as it was intended to, worked out financially. Healthcare business got spun off, trucking business got spun off. So they uh, were willing to place bets, big bets on these uh, things. And they invested in Qualcomm Retail, which you know, arguably wasn't super successful, but it created some of the best beacon technologies, all the beacons that were in the Apple stores that that drove the welcome to the Apple store message that occurred when you crossed the threshold, as opposed to when you drove into the car park, which is when you would get the welcome message before, because they were using geofencing. The, the beacon was not intended to be this revolutionary physical to digital technology. They just wanted a welcome message that actually gave the welcome message when you entered the store, which is one of the things that Bluetooth beacons are uh, are good for. So Qualcomm provided the hardware for that, and they provided the beacons that were at the Super Bowl and uh, all sorts of great things. So it was a great learning experience. And then sometimes the best things to do are recognize this is a good business. We're going to carve it out and spin it out, which is what they did with the beacon business. And it became a, a company called Gimbal that went on to, to do its own thing. And uh, um, uh, you know, when I was at IBM, um, they, uh, they would just gone through this very traumatic downsizing. They'd gone from uh, 500,000 people to 300,000 people. Um, and uh, it turned out to be one of the best things they ever did, not just for their balance sheet, but all those IBMers went off and started, became IBM VARs. And uh, yep. suddenly they became more efficient. And, you know, this uh, IBM uh, expertise was diffused into a really potent partner ecosystem. And they, you know, one of the things I learned there was partners are super important. It became impossible to sell anything direct to IBM. You had to do the order fulfillment through a partner. And that, you know, built huge strength by having something that was better than a single strong company. It was, uh, you know, thousands of strong companies all working together. Well, you've opened the door here, and I appreciate that. that. That's a good good segue also into Beacon, Beacon Technologies, and kind of maybe a little bit more of the current stuff that you've been working on. But just as a primer here, um, and not to fly over it too fast, but at a very simplistic level, you know, there are a handful of competing protocols that have all kind of played. I mean, everyone somewhat to an extent is, is probably used to Wi-Fi. Everyone thinks about that, right? You know, later to the level, whatever. But then there's all these other little protocols that kind of People have been playing around. Bluetooth has been around for a long time. And as I said, it, it, its origination was just a simple, close proximity wireless protocol, right? Uh, if I remember correctly, a personal area network was how it was originally built, mm-hmm. right? But then since then, a lot of things have kind of glammed onto it, right? Because it's got a lot of use cases. So maybe just at a high level, if you don't mind, because you're obviously a, 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 an acknowledged expert in the space, Tell us a little bit about kind of your observations around how the protocols kind of all were competing a little bit. Bluetooth sort of, you know, as I don't know, it's sort of one in a way to, in the personal space. I don't know much anything else that's everything building around that protocol. But then you have a particular use case in the beacon world, but there are plenty of other 
use cases that use Bluetooth, right? Um, yeah, it's not yeah. just beacon IoT kind of stuff. So maybe just a, you know, a little primer for the audience. Yeah, so so Bluetooth. I think everyone is familiar with Bluetooth at some level. the The brand equity of the Bluetooth brand is up there with Coca Cola. It may not always be positive. You think of all the frustration getting your phone to pair with your car or whatever. But actually, Bluetooth success is down to a number of things. But one of them is it's actually a family of protocols, and uh, Bluetooth was. Uh, named after a Nordic king, Harold Bluetooth, who united these warring factions um, uh, under one one roof. And that's essentially how Bluetooth came to being. There were a bunch of technology giants, uh, uh, IBM and uh, Toshiba and Intel, and they all rather, they were all developing protocols to replace the cord that connected your keyboard to your computer uh, and and latterly your headphones to, to, to your iPod but it wasn't that wasn't envisaged originally um, mm-hmm. and so they developed a family of protocols and there was uh, ended up being Bluetooth classic and Bluetooth low energy um, and uh, you know people think of it as one thing but actually there's remarkable levels of incompatibility at one time between those now it's all neatly dovetailed together and Bluetooth is arguably one of the most successful wireless protocols in in the world there's tens of thousands of different kinds of devices uh, and the level of functionality whether it's really high quality audio streaming there's new functions around that angle of arrival for centimeter level uh, asset positioning um, to connecting IoT devices. And, and, and the, the bit that changed indoor location and asset tracking is just a tiny fragment of a massive portfolio of technologies that is under Bluetooth. And it's called the Bluetooth advertising packet. And if, if you think about it, you're, you've got a bunch of Bluetooth devices. We, we all have. How do they know about each other? How does your phone know that there's a printer that is nearby? How does your iPhone know that there's some earbuds or a watch nearby? Mm-hmm. And they know because they're broadcasting uh, something called an advertising packet. And uh, the way advertising packets work is a little bit like lighthouses, i.e. there's no connection. You're just blasting out an acknowledgement that I am here. Um, and that's what a Bluetooth beacon is. It's the, it uses this discovery protocol that allows Bluetooth devices to know that there's another one nearby. Uh, but rather than kind of the preamble, the warm up to coupling and connecting, they're, they're simply just doing uh, the, the advertising and saying, I am asset one, two, three. Uh, and I'm sitting here, and then people started figuring out, well, where is asset one, two, three? Where is that Bluetooth tag or Bluetooth beacon? And they realized that it was a bit like that child, uh, childish game where you say you're warmer, you're colder, you're warmer, you're colder. If you look at signal strength um, and the signal gets stronger, you're probably getting closer to the beacon. So that in technical terms is called received signal strength. The RSSI Mm -hmm. is the acronym. And when the RSSI goes up, signal's stronger, it means you're closer. And so we started to use these tags, not just to say, well, there's a tag nearby, you can see the beacon, but you're getting closer or you're getting further away. And so you go from discovery of presence to proximity. Am I close, am I far away? And once you have proximity, you can use that to get a sense of location. Like if there are three lighthouses and I can, or four lighthouses, I can only see three, one's bright, one one is faint. Then you start to get a sense of where I might be relative to those known positions, those known landmarks. And so that's the basis of the indoor location and the asset tracking, um, which are kind of two sides of the same coin, uh, you look at reference points, you look at signal strength, and you figure out either where you are uh, relative to these fixed points, or you have fixed readers and you start to figure out where the tags are that are attached to assets that you care about. And now, you know, we've all got familiar with Bluetooth tagging because a number of us have 
um, uh, tile, uh, Bluetooth tile tags on our key rings and, and so forth. So we've kind of got used to the fact that, uh, that this is a, a useful thing, but the, that tagging technology has gone beyond keys and, uh, oh, yeah. and, and wallets uh, to, to everything. And that's, that's, that's really what Williot, the company I work for now, is, is focused on going from the internet of expensive things where you've got this big bulky battery beacon or tag on it to everyday things, um, cardboard boxes, vaccine vials, uh, um, uh, packets of, uh, with uh, vegetables and fruit in, all of these things can start to get tracked and connected. And uh, the result, I believe, is going to be an explosion in the size of the internet. The internet is about to get 100 times bigger and it's going to change a lot of things. Uh, mm-hmm. It will be hugely disruptive, I think, mainly for the good. Um, but it's something that um, it's it's a bit. I don't know if you remember the Y two K thing. Oh, uh, the, the You know, the Millennium Bug. The fact that we all thought all our our uh, devices would stop working when the clocks rolled from uh, uh, December the thirty first, nineteen ninety nine, to January the first on the year 2000. And I really see this um, explosion of the internet as being similar to that. It's something that's going to happen um, and it can potentially be destructive for some if you're on the wrong side of it. But rather like all the companies that ended up renovating their IT infrastructure because they were worried it was going to stop working, this presents amazing opportunities, actually much bigger opportunities. You know, think if we can apply the power of the cloud and the power of the internet to things like packages of PPE masks. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we've gone through a pandemic where we had shortages of things that, that shouldn't have been in short supply. It actually wasn't that there were enough there weren't enough PPE masks. It was, they were in the wrong place and we didn't know where they were. You know, hospitals, many hospitals actually had enough uh, of of the essentials they needed, but Mm -hmm. no one knew where they were because they were all in the dark. They were offline. And, and, you know, why wouldn't they be? We've gone through millennia where nothing's been connected to the internet and then it was computers and then phones. But what we're about to get to to in the future is where everything, Almost everything is connected. Every sock, every uh, package has got intelligence and it's going to be able to communicate. And that is just an incredible explosion that, uh, that I think is, it, it sort of answers this question in my mind. It's like things are changing so fast. It's got to slow down. What can possibly cause this to accelerate? I think this is one of the things that's going to cause it to accelerate. This, we're going to have two orders of magnitude of growth in connectivity and intelligence. And there'll be new companies will spring into life. Old companies will disappear. Some old companies will figure out how to use this to even get bigger or more successful. But it's going to be a very, very interesting time. Oh, it, it, I could, couldn't agree more. And as technologists, I mean, uh, you know, we, we've, we've been blessed and cursed to be at the forefront of a lot of change that's good and bad, you know, comes with, comes with, comes with the, the pluses and the minuses. But let me, let me, let me, Kind of encapsulate just a little bit. So Bluetooth is a is a communication protocol at the end of the day, right? Yes. And beacon technologies or beacons are a use case of that communication protocol because there's plenty of other tangentially related uh, use cases of Bluetooth, right? Because I just want to kind of frame up and, and you'll see where I'm going in a second. Is you know again, it's like it's like why you know it's like you know uh, Wi-Fi like wireless, right? It's just a protocol, but there's a gazillion things I can do with it when I start letting my mind kind of get wrapped around it. And within Bluetooth, there's the beacon use case or beacons, right? Which is about proximity and location and information going back. It's not I'm not exchanging you know video or you know audio or anything like that. I'm focused on proximity. So if you were to encapsulate beacons as just a, as a use case, is it about the proximity location um, kind of computations? Yeah, yeah. I think it can be about where you are. So indoor okay. location, indoor navigation. How do I sure. find my way around this hospital or shopping sure. mall? Having a 
automatic check-in experience when you arrive in the doctor's surgery, so you're not queuing up. So it can be part of that. And that's about Bluetooth beacons. So beacons are are stationary objects that give you an orientation, just like a lighthouse does. Gotcha. Tags are almost the opposite. It's the the, the Bluetooth thing, the transmitter's moving around. So Mm -hmm. this is is like uh, putting the... uh, you know, you're in a spy movie and you slap the tracker on the mm-hmm. uh, on, on the person's car and you're tracking it. So tags, just like luggage tags, uh, ba- uh, baggage tags, they're moving around. So it's mm-hmm. actually the same radio. It's just kind of configured differently. And 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 a, the, the, the chip at the center of it is very often the, the same. They're very often made by a company called Nordic Semiconductor, but there's a mm-hmm. bunch of ones that compete. And, you know, that Nordic chip is the same, whether it's in a stationary beacon or a mobile tag, but what surrounds it tends to be different. You know, beacons are sometimes plugged into the wall. They get their power from, uh, uh, from you know, a, a consistent source. Uh, generally, if they've got batteries, then they're really big. Uh, whereas tags, the idea is let's make this as cheap and as small as possible. So tags tend to be smaller. And where Williard ended up was going from being something that's a little bit bigger than a coin cell battery to something that's the size of a postage stamp or, or, or actually even smaller in the case of uh, we built a, a tag into a vaccine vial of COVID vaccine. So that is mm-hmm. pretty small. Uh, and. and yeah, so that's so that's the range from beacons to, to 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 tags, and it's all a subset of that much bigger wireless Bluetooth protocol that you were talking. I, 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 absolutely, and, and and where I was going to jump in is because again, big big point of differentiation here. There's beacons, which are sort of the stationary things that people kind of navigate or use for their navigation purposes. Yeah, and then the tags themselves are. Often beacons are active, whereas tags tend to be passive, right? More often than not, because if it's active, then all of a sudden I need electricity or power or something, and now I've got a different engineering problem I got to solve, right? Is I, well, I, I think up until now both have been active, but but okay. but you know, Williot's technology is described as passive because it doesn't have a battery. Uh, right. I mean, we can right. put batteries on them, but uh, we're, we're we're the thing that differentiates us is is it's, you know, it costs, rather than a Bluetooth beacon costing $10, you know, th- this is like 10 cents. And one of the reasons why it's 10 cents is there's no battery. There's actually not even a printed circuit board. It's a chip that's glued to an antenna. And that's, and where, so, that's where I was about to go. Is, is, yeah, yeah. Is now so all passive, of a sudden that makes you get into passive. how do I actually make this, right? Because, yeah. you know, again, you start getting your creative juices going here and I start thinking about power in a traditional passive device like this. And, you know, there's a lot of different sources of power and we get stuck sometimes thinking electricity or, you know, batteries or something. Well, shit, I got kinetic energy, right? I mean, how many devices are running around today where I can just shake it and all of a sudden creating power, right? So if I've got something on a moving device, well, there's gravity or kinetic energy or solar or all sorts of interesting power sources. Exactly. Right. Friction. I mean, whatever, whatever you want to look at. So I don't even think we've really scratched the surface on how to connect some of those things or a power, I should say, some of those things. But then I also think about um, where you're headed, which is, um, the you know, we've miniaturized it, but simultaneously the materials with which we're building, you talked about a printed circuit board, but the materials with which that create the gates or the, you know, the processor or whatever it is underneath there, you know, we've also thought copper and other kind of materials, but can we get into organic style, you know, materials we so can. that all of a sudden I've got a biodegradable tag? Absolutely. You know, yeah, you can absolutely okay, do so, that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why people like our tags is you don't have to put a battery hazardous sticker if you're shipping it through the post. That's like one small right. benefit of getting rid of the uh, getting rid of the, the the battery. I mean, you can get energy harvesting is not new. Um, uh, solar energy is oh. very, you know, we're running around in cars sometimes that have been powered by solar panels on our roof. It is a massive source of high power. The problem is you need a solar cell and, and even you can make them very small. We actually 
developed in our R&D labs a, a, a light harvester that can harvest light from the moon. Uh, mm-hmm. But you still, it needs to be exposed to the moon. You can't have it in a box that has got a bunch of other boxes piled up on it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and e- e- even then, it tends to be a little more expensive. If you start doing energy, kinetic energy harvesting, uh, which is very often in light switches. There's some great implementations of that. That's great. But then, you know, the mechanics make it bigger and bulkier and more expensive. Yep. So energy harvesting from radio waves, it turns out, is the hardest on that spectrum of energy. Was probably, there's probably a few other things, but in terms of mainstream energy harvesting, energy harvesting from uh, uh, radio waves is one of the hardest things by about three orders of magnitude in terms of you compare the energy that you get from a stray Bluetooth signal, which is what we harvest energy mm-hmm. from, to harvesting from sunlight. And, and it's just many, many orders of magnitude, less power. So, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the benefits of, of having energy harvesting from radio waves are incredibly low cost. You don't need to, it can be super simple, it can be tiny, um, and it can doesn't need to be on the surface. It can be have things piled on top of it, and so much more versatile, flexible, economic, and scalable. The problem is it's just a thousand times harder to do it because, A, how do you capture that very weak signal? B, once you've kept it, how do you stop it? evaporating there's uh, Mm -hmm. circuits have this phenomenon called leakage so Mm -hmm. i've harvested all this energy how do i do something with it before it disappears through the hole in the bucket uh, Mm -hmm. which is you know the way these electronics work and then even if i manage to make the hole in the bucket tiny and i capture the energy i still don't have very much energy because this is like from a radio wave. So how do I do anything useful with the tiny amount of energy that, that, that I have? And those are the core technical problems that the geniuses that I bumped into at a conference on RFID uh, have been able to solve. Uh, they're some of the best semiconductor engineers in the world. The, the previous company to Williot was uh, one called Willocity. Um, Velocity pioneered millimeter wave, which is, in short, Mm -hmm. one of the things that makes 5G faster than 4G. And Qualcomm bought them. Uh, They bought Mm -hmm. them, and it was a great exit. And uh, so they they kind of did that uh, uh, sale of a technology that was very high performance, kind of premium chip cost to, well, okay, we've got done fast and relatively expensive. What about going the other end of that spectrum, you know, we could democratize democratize IoT. We could take it from being this expensive, expensive technology on expensive things. What if we we made it uh, disposable uh, in, in and recyclable? Um, mm-hmm. And tiny and low cost and we could mm-hmm. democratize the internet of things and have the mm-hmm. internet of everyday things and so you know when i i actually found them at the rfid journal live conference i was teaching a course on bluetooth beacons it had been a harrowing day because i was very nervous that teaching about bluetooth at an rfid conference you know either no one's going to show up or they're going to show up and they're going to lynch me because, you know, Bluetooth and RFID, competing technologies. And actually, I found that neither of those things happened, although the room was empty when I got there. I was setting up my lecture materials and there were like three people sitting uh, looking at me warily. And then that hand on the clock kind of went to the top of the hour and suddenly this room filled up with almost 100 people, standing room only, and it was a full-on day of audience interaction and learning about some of the stuff we've just been talking about and getting into a bit more detail. And then at the end of it, this Israeli guy came up to me and he said, um, I, I um, see the startup. We're just uh, you know a few weeks in and we're going to create a passive Bluetooth radio. Would you like to do some consulting for us? And I kind of looked at him and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I've just <laughs> read the book and given a one-day training course. And, you know, the words passive Bluetooth have never, you know, come out of my mouth. And I don't know what you're talking about. So I was very tired. And I politely, as I could, said, no, I don't think I can help you. Like, obviously, a really smart person. So mm-hmm. uh, I can't help. Um, right. And um, he said, well, 
what about just let's just chat uh have a coffee and so i said okay all right so we'll meet tomorrow at starbucks and we'll talk about it some more and i didn't think about it again until i was driving home um uh from uh, uh wherever it was palm springs uh, i think it was and uh i'm like oh God, I forgot about that meeting uh, and I'm like phoning up and I'm like super apologetic. I'm sorry, I should be in Starbucks with you. And uh, uh, basically I said, I'll do, you know, whatever whatever you want me to do, I'll, uh, I'll do it. I just felt mortified that I'd stood up this really nice guy who's mm -hmm. obviously a genius. Um, and so I then start this consulting project to, uh, and the project was, what are we going to do with passive Bluetooth and what can it be used for and what can it not be used for? And, uh, and I'm like, started to create a huge spreadsheet. And then, and then they uh, basically uh, said, oh, well, we're looking for someone to set up our US operations and uh, you seem like you might be uh, useful. Um, and I went from being very standoffish and British to being undignified and like, yes, I'll do it. It's, this is amazing. Uh, and I joined up as uh, employee number 13, uh, the first one outside of uh, Israel. And um, my first job actually was to, beyond the, what are we going to do with this, was uh, um, they'd already raised $10 million in their first month, um, mm -hmm. just based on their resume. And uh, uh, but Qualcomm and um, Merck, the German pharmaceutical company, wanted to invest. Yeah. And my job was to create the business plan to, because Qualcomm doesn't just write you a check. They're like, uh, yeah, Tal, Alon, you're on, you're brilliant, the three founders, but show me a business plan. And I'm like, well, that shouldn't be too hard. You raised $10 million. Give me the spreadsheet that you used to raise the first $10 million and I'll, you know, maybe add a few extra columns to it and uh, update the assumptions and we'll be good to go. And Tal, the CEO said, well, I don't think this is going to be very uh, helpful, but I'll send it to you. And he sent me the world's smallest spreadsheet. It was like four rows, five columns. And that's, that's what the early investors who were all financial investors, part of the Israeli high-tech ecosystem. They knew these guys. They heard the one trillion uh, democratizing IoT pitch, and they were just in based on yep. that. But that wasn't enough for Qualcomm. So I produced a huge spreadsheet with lots of different <laughs> uh, variables in it. And, uh, and that was really the start of my job working uh, working at, uh, at William. Let me, let me, let me, um, and again, as I told you at the beginning of this conversation, I look at the clock here, an hour has flown by, um, and I'm, I feel like I got about 10 more hours at a minimum, if not days or weeks, where I could dive into this into a lot of detail. So I'm going to, I'm going to close down a little bit, just to be mindful of your time and, and keep it to an hour or a little bit over an hour is now, and we didn't even get to this, but you know, you are sitting at the Vanguard again of the adoption of a particular type of technology which will connect physical devices and this is this is up and down the stack from you know shoelaces to you know parts for uh spacex from cars to airplanes to my coffee cup i mean whatever it is so a couple things there you know and and it's weird to say this too but i again agree we're sort of at the early stages still of this, you know, RFID well, was kind of playing around there. And, and now you guys are kind of, you know, there's some convergence happening. What's the best of RFID? What's the best of Bluetooth beacon? How does that all come together to create this mapping that we're all looking for? Because the problem doesn't change. The problem is we want to connect all the devices. How do you do that? So where do you, what do you see over the next couple of years? Because that's for me, in my entire pursuit of supply chain, I have always told everybody, no supply chain will be figured out until we know where all the assets are down to the discrete level. Yep. And to do that, we need something like a beacon technology attached to everything. And yep. people always ask, well, how, how small does that go? Do you go down and screws? I'm like, well, maybe not yet, but eventually materials will come around that we can do that, right? Yeah. We're just not there yet. That's what I have to yeah. the organic stuff and some of the miniaturization that's going on. But what do you see today as sort of the big, you know, how, does, how does, whether it's Huliat or, or beacon, how is that getting introduced? You guys are playing, I think, in pharmaceuticals right now, but where are you yeah. seeing a lot of these sort of early adoption? What verticals, what spaces, you know, where you guys Well, playing? it's interesting. We've got this yeah. bookends problem uh, again. It's like the big picture is just huge. Uh, and, and, yeah. and ultimately, this can, there's so many very important problems that this can have a material impact on climate change, reducing our carbon footprint, food safety, drug safety, traceability. 
Um, you know, are we really going to throw away every leaf of spinach in the whole of the United States the next time someone gets sick? I mean, that that is like we're in 19th century behavior in the 21st century. So, and the FDA has been banging the drum on this. And I have to say, Willie Ott won the FDA's traceability challenge. I'm going to, uh, it's, it's an advert for that. But, but more importantly, we... F- Companies that make food need to act now and start doing something called serialization. And you know, there's other companies and other industries that are doing it, the forward-thinking. Ralph Lauren, a couple of years ago, announced every single Ralph Lauren product will not just have a SKU, but it'll have a serial number, a bit like the VIN number in your, your mm-hmm. phone. Uh, your your car. Um, it'll have a unique ID, a digital twin, a digital passport. And we have, to, that's got nothing to do with the beacon technology. That's uh, yep. applications, data, but, but it, it impacts how you manufacture. You need to give, issue the passports, when the, the birth certificates, when uh, these products come into life. So companies need to get on with that. And, and, and you know, why would you do that? Well, you do that because once you have that, then you go from having a supply chain that's in the dark where you kind of wave goodbye. It's a bit like your kids, they're 18 and you're like, I'll see you in a few years' mm-hmm. time when the laundry gets so dirty, you have to mm-hmm. come back to use our washing machine. Um, uh, that's what we're doing. Most companies are doing that way. Okay, maybe there's some EDI. You've got the odd tracker on the truck. But essentially, you have no idea where your stuff is. And mm-hmm. as a result, we're making almost twice as much material. Uh, you know, We're employing double the capital in our supply chains. We think they're lean, but they're not lean. They're bloated. It's archaic because we have no flipping idea where the stuff is. So how do you deal with that lack of visibility in the supply chain? You just make more stuff and you push it through the channels and you hope that you don't run out. Uh, But you don't know. Uh, and, and you know the future that I see is a move from supply chains to demand chains, and that the demand chain is really the, you know, that's the model that that fixes a lot of this, where you have demand signals, you can see consumption in real time, yeah. sales uh, events occurring in your wholesale retail channels. So you make jeans, you should know every time Macy's sells one of your pairs of jeans. And then actually, if we do this properly and we provide value to consumers and do the right things in terms of privacy, we should actually know when people are wearing those things. Did they, they bought the jeans? Did they ever wear them? Did they wear them once and not wear them at all? Do, is, you know, is their wardrobe full of stuff that they really don't like and only they only really like about a quarter of it? If that's the case, why don't we buy that stuff back? give it to someone else that does want it. And then maybe we can make better quality stuff, you know, stuff that's durable, not this fast fashion that's polluting the water. And um, mm-hmm. we can all wear nice stuff that fits us. Yeah. And that's the, if, if you start giving a unique serial number to every item, and then you put a tag in it that can talk to the phone and the smart speaker and so forth, then you can start to actually move to a SaaS model for clothing, a SaaS model for, 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 for vegetables. It's, it's, so what do I mean by that? I mean, a subscription model where the apparel company becomes the Netflix of apparel. What does Netflix of apparel mean? That means I have a direct relationship with the people that are using my product. I know what they like and what they don't like. And once they finish with it, I take it back, just like we used to with the, the DVDs that we, sure. that we rented. So that model can apply to everything from pharmaceuticals uh, to food. You know, you could have be the Netflix of herbs and spices. You could know, mm-hmm. rather than having an Amazon dash button that you press, you could have a, a, a jar of, of, uh, of um, parsley and a jar of cinnamon. Uh, And and we can take those three jars of garlic that are all out of date and we can make sure that you have one jar that hasn't expired. If you have connected packaging for all of these consumables, we can reduce waste. 30 to 40 percent of food is wasted even before it gets to our plate. That shouldn't be happening. And it's happening because stuff sits in the sun. It's waiting where people, people don't know where it is. If you just 
So where do we start? So that's the Nirvana. That's the far bookend. Where we can start today is let's put tags on plastic crates and pallets and rolling cages. And this is like, these are the arteries for the supply chain. If we can get our arteries and the vascular system in shape, if we can instrument it and know where the crates are, then we can see, oh, that, that crate's been sitting in the sun or these crates with uh, tomatoes, they've been sitting at the back of that packing shed for a day. They should have gone out in an hour. If we can stop that, then you, you've just added a day of shelf life that means that it looks better in the store. You're more likely to sell it. It's going to last longer in someone's fridge. You then start tracking it in the fridge. Then you can remind people to use the lettuce that's been sitting there for, for three days. And that's actually already starting to happen. We have a partner called Sato in Japan that have been working with the Japanese government. And they've been putting tags on the packaging that goes on vegetables and fruit in the fridges in Tokyo. And so they know when uh, when there's stuff that needs to be used up and they can guide people and, and, and look at the rest of the waste that after you've wasted the 30 or 40%, you're wasting probably uh, a significant proportion of what goes into people's fridges. So that's the future that I see. I see um, better food safety, better drug safety, um, uh, much less wasted resources, all of the CO2 emissions and methane from that rotting food, all of the dye that goes into the rivers, we can actually save the planet, but also help the companies that adopt this make money. It's not an act of philanthropy. It's pure self-interest. Correct. So I'm going to, I'm going to put a cork in it there because it, honestly, hour and 10, hour and 15 into it. I, and I literally want to sit on a stage with you and talk about this because everything you're saying, I would, I would come from the other side, which is the supply chain requirements, the supply chain needs, the assets, I've got an entire uh, infographic made by a guy uh, out of uh, the, the Hague, I think, uh, Mark DeWitt, Circle Economy, that I use that depicts the 108 gigatons of stuff that we use and how do we actually track all that, half of that's food, half of that's materials. Uh, so, so much here, but the answer to it all, as we all know, is 42. So, exactly. I, episode right? 42, historic episode. episode 42. I really enjoyed it. The answer yeah. 42 has been awesome, Steve. I, I really, I, I knew it was going to be a pleasure, but thank you so much for spending time with us today. I'd love to have you back and I'd love to continue the conversations in, in a lot of different ways because there's a lot of stuff here that's. Yeah, Richard, relevant. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much. A great job and I, I, I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about this episode or topics on supply chain you'd like us to cover, you can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud while collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at requis.com.